action in the street is exciting But Jesus, between all the bleeding and fighting I've been reading and writing We need to handle our financial situation Are we a nation of states? What's the state of our nation? I'm past patiently waiting and passionately Smashing every expectation, every action To act of creation I'm laughing in the face of casualties and sorrow For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow gentlemen welcome into a brand new episode of let's dive deep my name is bradley my name is connor and today we are going to be continuing our deep dive into the hit broadway musical and pop culture phenomenon hamilton during today's deep dive we will be focusing on the end of act one songs 22 through 24 or 22 through 23 on the soundtrack and we'll get to that later that's dear theodosia tomorrow there will be more of us and non-stop Hello everybody, Editing Bradley here. This is going to surprise absolutely nobody, but Connor and I managed to talk for two hours just about Dear Theodosia, and tomorrow there'll be more of us. And because we wanted to do non-stop justice, throughout this podcast we kind of decide in real time not to cover non-stop in this podcast, and instead we will be covering non-stop and the end of Act 1 in next week's episode. So, just feel free to ignore us the numerous times in the podcast you're about to listen to when we say we're going to talk about non-stop because we're not we're going to talk about nonstop next week anyways back to the show as per usual we will be taking into account the disney plus version of the musical the soundtrack and of course the experience of seeing hamilton live so no matter where or how you have experienced hamilton this is the perfect place for you to be as always let's dive deep contains adult content like death People die in this uh, in this act, so or in this this couple of songs at the end of the act. So if you don't want to uh, play this con uh, or sorry to play this uh, conversation around children, I, I would recommend not doing that. Additionally, let's dive deep. Hamilton does contain spoilers. No funny joke about how many spoilers this time. Just a reminder that <laughs> there will be some of them. While our focus each episode is a specific set of songs, we will always take into account the entire musical to add context to our discussion. If you are enjoying this podcast, very, very important as we finish up Act 1 here, go and leave those five-star reviews on your podcatcher of choice to kind of bring the momentum. You know, this does a really good job of giving us momentum into Act 2, and you guys can do the same with those reviews. We are also going to be doing a couple in-between Act episodes. One of those will be a Q&A. If you guys are listening to this and have any questions you would like us to answer about the musical, I'm sure we'll do one kind of in-between Acts, and then one at the end of act two as we're kind of wrapping up the the let's dive deep hamilton run so make sure you get those questions to let's dive deep pod at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter and ask your questions at let's dive deep we would love from here we would love to hear from you but also we would love to have a lot of content to kind of sift through for that q a episode okay that is all of the maintenance done except for my neighbors that have just fired up the weed eater 
So this is going to be a delightful alfresco episode with the sounds of spring. Anyway, that's it. We are getting started, so let's kick back, relax, maybe grab your beverage of choice. I've got two. And let's dive deep into Hamilton. My father wasn't around. My father wasn't around. Swear that I'll be around for you. I'll do whatever it takes. I'll make a million mistakes. I'll make the world safe and sound for you. Come of age with our nation. We'll bleed and fight for you. We'll make it right for you. If we lay a strong enough foundation, we'll pass it on to you. We'll give the world to you and you'll blow us all away. All right, ladies and gentlemen, before we hop into Dear Theodosia, tomorrow there'll be more of us and nonstop. VectorCat this week, actually, uh, he slid into my DMs. Not very hard to do where he added me on Discord and we're all good. Um, but he he asked me if I would be keen on doing some homework this week and then assigned me some homework, which is very interesting. I'm usually amongst my friend group or peer group, the person who is assigning the Hamilton homework, not having it be assigned to me. So it's awesome to kind of be on the reverse here. Um, so so VectorCat, why? Why don't you kind of tell me what the homework was, kind of recap it for us, and then just just throw your questions at me. I may have some good answers. I may have some bad answers, but who knows? I think your answers are going to be fine. I'm also considering putting this out on Twitter when we're done, giving listeners a week to, to consider the same things you did and see and see what they bring to the discussion after listening to this episode. Oh, absolutely. It's good homework. It's not complicated. It's just like just really specific questions about what we're what we're watching, which is kind of what we're asking our audience to do anyway, by asking them to listen for three hours each week. (laughs) Well, and also, you know, when you're doing any kind of literary analysis, it's nice to have a little bit of prep. And I knew with my homework, this is a long preamble, but whatever. With my homework, I knew that these were things I was going to be bringing to the discussion. Right. And so I thought maybe I might be of better service to this discussion with you if if I gave you a little insight to where I was coming from, but I didn't want to feed you because I'm much more interested in when we differ than just telling you what to think or feel or what I, you know, it's always, you know, like there's no, there's no point if, if we are identical. Anyway, listeners, the homework that I admittedly a bit cheekily gave to Bradley, and I was honored that he took up the challenge, was number one, I encouraged him to listen to what I consider to be this show's predecessor, In the Heights, another property produced by Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it's not a predecessor to this show in as much as it's also about Alexander Hamilton, but there are stylistic similarities. And if Bradley did not have the time to listen to the entire first act of In the Heights. I just suggested listening to the last two songs from the show in Act One, The Club and Blackout. And then I also presented to him this theory that I share. It's not unique to me, and I forget who coined the idea, but the idea that in any good story, 
something dies at the end of Act 1. You can make the argument that this is more appropriate for stories that have a two-act structure. Things get a little bit murky if you're moving into three- or five-act structures. But in a two-act story, something dies at the end of Act 1. A person, an idea, a concept, a dream, something. Something dies at the end of Act 1. And the third thing that I wanted Bradley to consider before we began is that Nonstop, the last song of Act 1, is unapologetically Latin. It's swung, it's syncopated. We've had some of these island dance hall musical themes in the show before, but here, at this moment of the show, it is much more present than it was previously. This is new for the show. This is a new musical vocabulary. And so I encouraged Bradley to consider, why now? Why do we get a new musical mode now? So that was the homework. Three questions or three things to consider. What is it about In the Heights that you should consider when listening to this or analyzing this? Number two, what dies at the end of Act One? And number three, why the sudden infusion of different rhythms and musical themes? So, right. Bradley, what'd yeah. you think? So, so I'll, so I, I want to preface this by saying a lot of my, my really in-depth thoughts will come out when we analyze the songs. But I'll go over my overarching kind of points now and kind of what I took from those questions. And then the rest of it will get flushed out as we analyze the songs. But first one, In the Heights was interesting. So I listened to Act 1 fully through just the other day. Um, it was my birthday this weekend, so I made sure to uh, listen to it before that, so I was nice and sober and kind of attentive, or at least as attentive <laughs> as I could be. Um, so I, just for the audience, I have no idea. I don't know anything about In the Heights. I've only listened to Act 1 once, and it was like through headphones while I was on a walk, so it wasn't like the perfect place to really pay attention to it. Obviously, like if I could have had a Disney Plus version, that would have been better. Um, so most of the story of the beginning, like the first act of In the Heights, is kind of lost on me. I'll have to go back to it but when you get to the club and blackout there are so many you don't need to know the story actually at all i actually recommend maybe before listening to all of act one just listen to those two songs there's so many through lines between those two songs and the the two songs we get here um, so there are some big differences too like the beginning of um, the club and the beginning of Dear Theodosia is kind of the penultimate song. Couldn't be more different. One's like a pop, very Spanish feeling. <laughs> not pop's not the right word. Swing might be the right word. Like one's mm -hmm. very vibrant and positive and, and very, I, I, I know Spanish is not the right word, but that's the word that's coming to mind. Um, mm -hmm. Right. And Dear Theodosia could not be more different than that. Right. But what is, what is very obvious regardless of whether you know the story is that throughout the club and blackout you have obviously it's the end of an act so you have all that momentum going into act two like there's a sense of urgency there there's a lot happening but you can tell so clearly that all of the 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 callbacks to things that you've learned previously all of the overlapping themes are blended together perfectly there are points in blackout where you're mixing three four five different kind of musical genres i guess with uh, with audio all overlapped from all of the cast and the ensemble very reminiscent whether you know what that is or not it really brings you into 
kind of the ending of nonstop here where you get all that you get all of these songs you've already heard being repeated over and over again everyone in the cast and the ensemble is singing at the same time it generates that feeling of suspense and momentum in almost the exact same way and it was eerily similar when you view it from that point of view regardless of whether you actually know the story and so that's my big takeaway there is that you can so clearly tell that the the function of those two songs in In the Heights and the function of these two songs as kind of that the first act culminating in the shared experience of all these characters um, kind of hitting at one time is is certainly present through through both plays, musicals, what, whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my take, at least, you know, and that's one reason I wanted to highlight it here because I believe that Lin-Manuel Miranda and his team they have a bag of tricks. They have a toolkit. And there is a way to craft a perfect, compelling musical. And I really do look at In the Heights as being good in its own right, but also the team workshopping some things. Lin-Manuel Miranda coming into his own and finding his bag of tricks that he then employs in Hamilton that makes this one of the greatest end of act one sequences of all time. I think that its legacy starts within the Heights, right? And the, the thematic similarities there are unavoidable. They're, they're, they're excruciatingly obvious, mostly in blackout. I think dear Theodosia and the club serve similar purposes in that they're, they're good precursors to the ultimate song, Mm -hmm. right? They kind of set up that final, that final, um, momentous spectacle that ends the act right but especially if you just compare nonstop and blackout together it couldn't be more obvious that they're they're going for the exact same thing did you catch the magical bass line that i mentioned to you i did so blackout i want to talk about well? that bass. yeah i i want to talk about it through nonstop i think it's yeah i think it's more obvious in nonstop and I'll, I'll talk about it as we analyze that song um yes definitely i think i think there are some subtle differences um between the two um, but yeah, yeah, you can definitely hear like even yeah, even the bass line and the the rhythm to the song is identical in in, in many parts. In many parts, not constantly, right? Yeah. And nonstop, it's almost incessant. And nonstop, it truly is almost nonstop. But in in blackout, you just you get a taste of it, and then we move through modes, right? But yeah, it's there. It's like it's there. You know, I can I can see Lynn being like, ooh. Let's throw that in. I love that, you know? Like let's yeah. let's get that, you know. So number 2. In in any good story, something dies at the end of act 1. So I think what with Hamilton I think with Hamilton, so the obvious answer here on the Disney Plus version is Lawrence. Uh, I know you have a lot of reasons why this isn't in the soundtrack. I think it should be in the soundtrack, all things considered, right? Like having the soundtrack, people not know that Lawrence dies is a little bit weird to me. Like, cause this is, it's such a big part of the viewing experience on Disney Plus that it's weird mm-hmm. to just cut it all together from the soundtrack. So we'll talk about that later. So that's the obvious answer of what dies. Uh, I think the answer is different for every character. I think obviously you have an Angelica and Hamilton's kind of little love triangle thing that they've got going on. That dies. Like there are some really obvious ones. I think the the undercurrent, like the deep, the deepest I could dig to find something that died for everyone kind of equally that wasn't just like really obvious was to me it was the stakes and the excuses. Everything like 
the stakes now post-war just feel so much smaller and it allows you to view the characters in a way that you hadn't before because now like i view burr in non-stop with intense frustration at his both sidingness now right mm-hmm. you've already like when hamilton's like you studied and you fought and you killed people for this opportunity the fact that burr is still not picking a side here frustrates me more because the stakes have been lowered. We're not talking about a war where your like life or death might hang in the balance of whether you pick the right side. We're talking about like anonymously publishing newspaper articles about the thing you just fought and killed for in a way. And so while there's still credence to what Burr is saying, right? And there's still like there's still motivations and reasons he's doing it. The stakes have lowered to the point where I get I get more emotionally invested in that now. Same with Hamilton. Like now the excuse the excuse earlier for him not being a family man and not being with Eliza, like we need to win the war. We need to go out and win this war. But now the war is won, and now he's on to the net. Now it's about his job. Now it's about what he's gonna do as his day job, right? Like it's not the stakes are lower, and that allows you to emotionally resonate with with some of the characters more and be more frustrated with others. So I think to me, what dies here is the stakes and the excuses that the war provided, and now you're just left with the raw character motivations, and it's amazing to just like strip all the strip all of the stuff away, right? All of the excuses are gone, and now you can see these characters just as who they are. Instead of instead of the the excuses that the war provided to them, and I think it works really really well. I know it's a bit of a weird thing, and it's probably not the answer you were expecting, but it's the one I think kind of uh, it 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 falls universally over all the characters. I had no expectations about your answer to this because I, as we go through this, I'm going to provide a few of what I see as end of act deaths, right? But what I what I do find interesting is that you could you could cynically say, hot take from Bradley, he thinks that inventing a government is low stakes, you know, but compared that to, is compared to, <laughs> compared to, to death, dying. Yeah, absolutely. To like, right. Compa- compared right. to trying to figure out which side of a war you will not get killed on. It is. It's not a low stakes. It's thing. lower. It's, lo- it's, lower. it's lower. Right. It's lower. Yeah. It's not. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, with I'm, you. Not I'm, saying, I'm not saying none of this is important <laughs> and these people don't have stressful choices to make. I'm just saying they each had the war was the same excuse for Burr and Hamilton to act the way they did. And now the war is over and they're still acting the way they did. Yeah. Right. So absolutely. why is that? Like the, the stakes, the excuses the war provided are gone. Now they have different excuses. They're just less high stakes. Mm-hmm. And it makes you consider them through a different lens. You really have it, to evaluate. It completely flips yeah. how you view them. Yeah. And it and it makes this really compelling, right? Because th- those excuses are gone. I, I, I don't disagree. And I also list the war itself. That is my first death on my list at the end of Act 1. That is what I consider to be the first thing that dies here. Because it is a sea change. It is a world-changing event for all of these people. We already know that the world turned upside down. But yeah, we're take- about to go from a war where people are like killing each other about what they believe in to like cabinet battles about tax policy. Right. Mm-hmm. And those like it's incredible. Act two is incredible, but like that that's the change in the stakes. Like those cabinet battles aren't like you win or you die kind of like the war could be, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. They're like, win and you get like your banking set up or you get to work closer to the capital. Like the, the stakes are important. They're just lower across the board. Yeah, and it makes Act 2 that much more of a marvel because it is a hip-hop musical 
about fiscal policy that <laughs> right. is actually entertaining, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, I know you like Star Wars, so I think I think I wish Hamilton had come out before uh, the beginning of the prequel trilogy in Star Wars, because Star Wars is a good example of how like not to do fiscal policy in a story that doesn't really need it. And so Hamilton finds fiscal <laughs> policy and does it in a very interesting way, because spending 45 minutes... Right, you're you're like on the journey to find out how Anakin becomes Darth Vader. You spend the first forty five minutes about like trade embargoes, and you're like, okay, this is a bit weird. This is strange. So I like that Hamilton like successfully makes all of this very interesting. Well, I love it, but that's just me, you know. I mean, it's that's that's how long of a play Palpatine makes, right? (laughs) It's the the longest long con ever. Right for me. Two times. Me, he does it two times. Yeah, for me it's a feature, not a bug. That's just that's just how shrewd Sheev is, but I'm <laughs> going right, we'll, to we'll do what, Star yeah, Wars yeah. another day. Yeah, and I'm glad that you brought up Star Wars too because there's, you know, you can look at episode 4 and you can view it as a three-act structure, which which can kind of work. But it's one of those rare films that you can actually fit into a two-act structure because cinema usually lends itself to, to three acts rather than two. But episode four fits well analyzing it from a two-act POV because the destruction of Alderaan comes right in the middle of the film. And when Alderaan is destroyed, yes, a lot of people die. I, I mean, it's... Yeah, and, and, Leia, it, you know, and Leia seems unconcerned. Like, compared to the amount of people, including her father, that just died, she's she's not that upset about it. Anyway, this well, is a separate, that's a separate hot take for another day, but she but, doesn't, well, she doesn't but it's, exactly but it's, grieve on this. She kind of just No, it's relevant, it's relevant to Eliza and Hamilton coming up later. Like, her entire planet gets destroyed, and she's on the Falcon giving Luke a blanket. You know, like, she's comforting our protagonist, right? Our, our, our boy wonderkind over here. Uh, man, we are really getting in the weeds here, but no. So, but there is like, but with that, yeah, a lot of things die there. The idea that the empire is not ascendant dead. The idea that they, they don't have to fight, right? That's dead. Like there's, there's literal and conceptual depth there. Star Wars is considered by most to be one of the most compelling stories of all time. Look how popular it is. And you see this combination of literal and conceptual death also present at the end of Act 1 of Hamilton. It's not just the dancing and the lighting that makes this such a spectacular show. There is, there is intellectual spectacle present in this show as well. And it's the lead-up, the construction of Act 1, the payoff, the, the, these meaningful deaths, I think it is crucial that we focus on them because I believe it is part of what makes this show such a compelling success. Absolutely. I agree with everything you just said. We, we can't, I've decided we need to talk about star Wars one day. <laughs> now that we're, now that we're kind of on that. Um, I've been, I've been bugging you about it, man. You're you like, have. Oh, there's a, there's enough star Wars podcasts out there already. I Ooh. know one day we'll do it one, one day. day. Um, can I go on to question number three? Yes. I wish you would shut me up. All right. <laughs> All right, so nonstop being unapologetically Latin. Uh, I think this is my most surface-level take. I think, to me at least, it's very obvious why the song um, is structured the way it is, but also kind of just the way it, it starts. I think what the the Latin kind of influence provides is it it provides a lot of very 
I'm gonna use the word structure again. It provides a lot of structure to the song and it's less, it's, it's in one sense like very loose and free flowing and Hamilton's on the table whipping his coat around. But at the same time, it's very structured. There's a lot of like, a lot of like hard consonants that are being enunciated. There's a lot of like hard point. Like when you're when you're speaking or rapping the lines, it's also the most fun song I think that I like to do from Hamilton's POV in, in karaoke. Right? There's a lot of hard consonants and hard spots when you're speaking that keep like they're like little like little punches at the end of each line that provide a, a lot of structure to the song. And I think that really resembles well kind of the end of the war and going into act two. Like the war was loose. It's chaotic. They're stealing cannons. Yorktown people are dancing in a very like loose way around the stage. And now we have all this structure, right? We're, we're in a courtroom that's very structured. We're, we're singing lyrics with hard consonants. It's very structured. We're moving on into a point where we're going to create a government that's very structured. And I think, I think what the, the Latin influence here does is it, it kind of, without being too far of a departure, like I said, Hamilton is still rapping and dancing on tables and like that part of it still exists, but just the way the lines kind of come out one after another, after another, that it feels like it matches the structure of, of what we're watching and the structure we're moving into. And I think it's a very good transition. It matches the musical structure too. It's, it's interesting how this is a departure, right? Thematically but it still feels connected to the rest of the show. And I'm going to talk about that more specifically when we get to nonstop. But yeah, there is, there is something about that, that balance between experimentation, fluidity, and structure that just feels really appropriate to having this song be governed by a repeated theme, this you know, this syncopated uh, dotted note feel. Yeah, dotted note the, feel, but like just like gentlemen of the jury, I'm curious, bear with, like they're all very hard, I don't know, like very hard consonants at the beginning of yeah. all these lines or like, like it's very dotted. It's like, it's like Morse code in that way. It's like, structure is not the right word, but there's, there is a lot there that, that provides structure that I think some of the other songs previously haven't. No, I argue that structure is the right word because this song has a framework throughout that is more consistent than other songs do, right? This is something that I, I was texting you about. It's literally nonstop. When you, you, you know, you have songs like Guns and Ships that almost feel schizophrenic in the way they change modes. This song changes modes as well but it all feels connected because there's that underlying pattern keeping everything connected. And you couldn't pick, I, I don't think, like, if you look at Wait For It, that song is very different from this one. This is a huge ensemble number, or nonstop at least is what I'm talking about. Wait For It is very different from nonstop. And yet it has that same island dance hall feel just tempered a little bit. In that one, the force to be reckoned with is Leslie Odom Jr., not the orchestration. In this one, they take that sentiment in the orchestration and they ramp it up to match the ensemble. So even though it is new and different, it feels connected, right? My thing about the change in musical modes here how the 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 bells and rhythms change here just enough for you to notice is that the nation is new 
that the children are new. Like this is a complete sea change. New life is coming because everything else is dying. And so you have to have a new musical mode here to connect with the narrative of everything changing. And this, Latin music, this is where you can go that is different, that still still feels connected to what we've done previously, right? Because you want to do something here, but you don't want to go to Keith Urban. You don't want to go to Brad Paisley, <laughs> right. Right? right? Because it's, that like would I feel disconnected. Earlier, yeah. Like I felt mentioned last episode, like the character's <laughs> kind of pushing their character to the limit without going over. You want this mm-hmm. song to feel new and different. You don't want to go over the line where it feels like it doesn't belong. Yeah, that's a really good connection there. Yeah, that's that really falls in line with exactly what you were, you were saying. But yeah, yeah, that's a perfect way to describe it. It pushes the bounds and 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 forces the bounds to to react and flex, right? But but doesn't break the limit. You know, we don't all of a sudden have a Charlie Daniels song. We just have something different enough to notice. It's just a perfect end of an act. It just is. It's objectively perfectly constructed. Uh, all right. Do you want to dive into that construction? We have. It's going to take forever. Our, I want everyone to know what page number. We have 15 pages of notes. <laughs> One, five. And we've talked about none of them. All the homework was in Discord. So like we have any more on page two of our notes. Page no, one of the intro. No, we've, we've laid a strong enough foundation. Yeah, yes, that's true. So we're, we're gonna start. We're gonna start on page two of our fifteen pages of notes about these songs, uh, and we're gonna dive into Dear Theodosia. Okay, so Dear Theodosia comes right after we have heard back from from King King George, and he's not all too happy. Um, I'm starting to really take Vector Cat's side after about a week here. Um, I, I'm really starting to take the the jilted lover theme. Like I'm starting to embrace that as my own opinion as well, instead of the the cheated at the game thing. Um, so the king's not happy, and then we get this beautiful. I don't want to call it the last good moment between these two because I think there are some subtle some subtle moments later, even in nonstop and, and maybe in act number two, where there's still like a little bit of mutual respect and friendship. But we we get and Linda Manuel lets us inside both of our kind of main characters here, Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton, and we get to go through the shared experience of becoming a father with them, which couldn't be more perfect for the end of the war because it kind of has that like volcano vibe like after the eruption and all the lavas destroyed everything right then everything starts to grow back and new life emerges kind of like after a forest fire in a way and it's so thematically perfect with just kind of the natural cycle of life outside of the play that just getting the war is over what's been destroyed has been destroyed what are we going to build we need to build the country we need to build the constitution we need to build our systems of government but first First, we get to just get a pure kind of regrowth and regeneration of, of what's going to be the next generation here. And it, it couldn't be a better song to, to, to show us how similar Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton are in a lot of ways, knowing that one is going to kill the other. We know this already, right? And so getting this moment to see how similar they really are in a lot of, in a lot of aspects of their lives, but getting this really cool shared experience that's very true to life and just perfect for the end of the war i think that's one of the main strengths of this song honestly is that it's a parallelism it's them together rather than having a song about burr's thoughts of having a child and then a 
a song about Hamilton's thoughts about having a child. We have plenty of other reasons to compare the two, but having another, right? Especially about having a child here, this comparison is is really important. You know, it's and it's it's a better song for being just one song instead of two, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, and they don't they don't even fully they don't even fully go in on the the duo here. Like it starts with Aaron Burr saying his bit, and then it goes to Hamilton saying his bit. Like they still embrace that individual individuality, and then they they kind of merge them together a few times in the middle, but then fully at the end. So they kind of get the best of both worlds here, as they get that those two separate experiences and how they merge together as one. But you still kind of get to see both, even if it's just for a brief time. Well, I would argue that similar but different is the governing concept about Burr and Hamilton the entire show. Absolutely. De- similar but different. It- it's it's actually frustrating here to see how similar, like how different this could have been between the two if they had explored this with each other. Because it kind of plays off on the stage. Like they're having this moment separately and we're seeing it together, right? Like we have some insider, like it doesn't feel like they're in the same room doing this together. It feels like Hamilton and and Burr kind of at their houses with their kids, each singing this song at the same time. And we're getting to, to through some theater magic, see them both doing it. Yeah. This is definitely a masterclass in creating dramatic irony here because we, the audience, we know more about these two individuals than they know about each other. And we can see what's on their hearts and we can sympathize and we can wish, oh my God, will you please walk across the street and will you talk to your friend Aaron about how happy you are about having a son? And maybe he, who lives across the street from you, you idiot, will tell you (laughs) that y'all have something in common and maybe y'all might be actual friends instead of just adjacent colleagues to each other. Maybe maybe you could actually have some common ground here and be sympathetic towards each other. Yeah, that just adds to the heartbreak of A.Burr and A.Ham that they don't sit around over tea and scones talking about how happy they are to both be fathers at relatively the same time. And this sets us up, I would also argue, we're already emotionally primed here by them having kids at the same time in the context of the show. We're emotionally primed to react to them both being lawyers at the same time, in the same town, and practicing together. So on the we same have, lawsuit. Yeah, the same case. The exact the same, same case. They're, they're together in the same case. Absolutely. Right. It, it does a really good job of kind of pairing them together. Yeah. And it's, you can, you can make the cynical argument, which I'm sure many have had, like the rest of the company needed more time to prep for what's coming next. But tonally, I really do think this is the calmest and most intimate moment uh, in terms of like what you're hearing, what you're taking in. Like this is one of the more subtle moments in the show. And when you when you think about songs like uh, like Burn, like Wait for It, they have quieter, simpler moments, but they still have an intensity to them. They have an aggression to them that is coming off the stage and coming at you, coming to get you into the house. This 
song is passionate and sincere, but it really has a kind of peace to it. And again, to me, that evokes these simple and and sincere notions of if they had just connected empathetically more often, was, was Hamilton's death avoidable, specifically at the hands of Burr? I think that Alexander Hamilton might be one of those guys that was like gonna, he was gonna get killed by somebody. <laughs> it kind of it do, they they do they don't give Hamilton the same level of again again the stakes are just a little lower. So when they do give Hamilton the intense moments, it's about like what he wants for the banks. Like it's not about like life or death in a war. He's not storming Redoubt Number Ten in in Act Two, right? But they they do a good job of 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 making hamilton like somebody who is probably gonna get shot by someone and like they do it again like again this podcast contains spoilers right i think they do a lot of that through philip like philip just for no for no real reason (laughs) other than someone was talking shit about his dad who is an easy person to talk shit about i've spent like four podcasts talking shit about his dumb plan that worked (laughs) right but like like he's an easy dude to talk shit about. You're gonna go die over this? Like, what are you doing? Like, it's it's very. I think they do a lot of it through Philip. But yeah, he's someone who's gonna get shot by somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, he would rather be divisive than indecisive. For better or for worse, and it, it ends up being for both. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about both of these guys that we know, and a pretty decent discussion already of why we have both of them on stage at the same time. But can we talk about, for a second, the fact that these two guys on stage, simultaneously talking about having their first child, are both orphans. And I'm curious to know how their being orphans affects your experience watching or listening to the song. I think the part, like, my father wasn't around, my father wasn't around, I swear that I'll be around for you. I think, I don't think it directly impacts it in the sense that them being orphans does anything for me. I think what it does do, though, is it, it it's another highlighted similarity between them. Like, not only are they becoming fathers at the same time, they're both people who didn't have fathers, so it adds to the intensity to which they want to be good fathers. And so I, I think... I think in that sense, it does something for me in, in that it, it really heaps onto the parallelism here and it's directly related to parenting. Like they're becoming fathers and they both didn't have fathers and those are directly related. Um, but I think insofar as the the structure of the the musical, um, it's just adding on to the the parallelism that this song is it was really obviously trying to to give to the audience. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's a lot for me to ponder. Was there... so? If so I'm, there... hang on. If I'm, if I'm understanding correctly, so they're they're both being orphans is a um a defining like seasoning to their parallelism. Like we're supposed to view these two as similar, right? So like they're both orphans, so that so they're similar. Do you? But you don't include that into your analysis of like how they're treating their their children i'm just trying to make sure i understand is all i'll try and clarify so so one of the things we've known the whole time throughout this play 
is that Hamilton and Burr are orphans. This is not new information. Burr says mm-hmm. it in Aaron Burr, sir, and he won't shut the fuck up about it when he introduces Hamilton every time. <laughs> so Hamilton gets introduced as an orphan. So so my emotional my emotional respect for them, right? Because when you hear someone's an orphan, you inherently feel bad for them, right? That is a shitty situation. But I've known that this whole time. So I already feel that sympathy towards them from previous songs and i'm carrying that into this song so this song is introducing a new sympathy for me i already know this what it is doing is highlighting because i might not have thought about it it's highlighting that this has both happened to them you might not make the connection because there's a lot going on especially on your first watch through you might know independently that they're orphans but you might not connect that as something they share or have in common and Mm, that's what this song mm -hmm. is introducing to you so i'm not saying that i'm like I'm not saying that I'm callously like, I don't give a shit that they're orphans. I've already had that sympathetic moment way earlier in the musical. And I'm carrying those feelings into this song. But that song is not introducing them to me. What it is doing is taking those those feelings and the fact that they are both orphans and making sure that I'm comparing, that I'm understanding that this is something they both have in common. Because it's not obvious that they both have it in common before this. But you do know before this that they're both orphans. I understand better now. I'm glad that I asked for the clarification. I yeah, I'm not it. like I, I'm not trying to be no, here no, like no, no. Ah, there, there are orphans. Who cares? Ah, whatever. No, I so didn't necessarily think that you were being all that callous. I was just trying to understand the finer points of what you were saying because I didn't I didn't quite understand the nuance yet. Yeah. My my thing though is that I I do. I've already established sympathy as an audience member. I already understand them, understand all of these facts about these two orphans. But for me, the sympathy, the emotional investment here is manipulated by this song coming after Right Hand Man and everything else in the war. Because we get to look at these people at the same time, Compare them, contrast them, think about what makes them the same, what makes them different. And what stands out to me is that whereas Burr was not, Hamilton was seated at the right hand of the father. And Hamilton inherits later on in his life, he gets a father figure that Burr never gets. And so this, to me, makes Burr a much more emotional, sympathetic character because he is, by dint of his own actions and circumstance, both, he is denied things that destiny gives to Hamilton. So, oh, okay, I have a really good point on that. So I'm not, I am not conflating the father figure thing to being an orphan. I'm like conflating it to the actions each one took. So they both, before the war, start out as orphans. And throughout their actions, not because they're orphans, but throughout their actions through the war, Hamilton ends up with a father figure and Burr does not. But I can directly kind of correlate that with the actions each took and not with the... So I'm just I'm just doing like two degrees of separation here that maybe mm. you're, you're not doing. I'm separating like... For me, in order, it goes they are both orphans and then they both make a bunch of choices in life that are separate from them being orphans. And then one ends up with a father figure and one doesn't. But I think it's mostly because of the actions. And while that still makes me feel bad for Burr, I think Burr, I think Burr we talked about it, he makes the lower risk decision and gets the lower reward. To me, like it, I feel bad for him, but I also kind of go like, you, 
Hamilton made if what you wanted was this like father figure type of thing, Hamilton made the choices that'll get him to that, right? Even if it's somewhat by accident and you didn't. And so I still feel bad for him, but I don't feel quite as extra bad about the father figure part of it because a lot of it's not like Hamilton going out to find a father figure. It's that like he took the higher risk actions and is getting the higher reward, if that's making sense. I agree with you completely if I'm viewing the show through my own eyes. If I'm thinking about this song through how I suppose I am intended to evaluate the psychology of Burr himself, and I probably just didn't frame this well to begin with, Burr, in my opinion, I I have this belief that he is up for whatever destiny has in store for him. And in this moment, he is... He's reminding us that that destiny did not have a father in store for him, right? He Burr is about, I will get what destiny has in store for me, and I'm willing to wait for it. However, Hamilton went and got himself a daddy. And Definitely. why, so, so, why so has Burr destiny I- not given me a daddy? Because I deserve one as well. I am I am an original. I am an amenable. Why do I not have a daddy? <laughs> <laughs> right, so so you're you're 100 percent correct. I'm I'm just saying how I feel about Burr and Hamilton. Burr does not view it this way. <laughs> Burr 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 does not view his role in everything at all the same way I do as a viewer ever. Right, like like the the whole point is that the whole point of the musical is that Burr is kind of the unreliable narrator, and so I'm viewing I'm like my opinion on the what we just talked about was my own opinion and how I view it. Burr Burr obviously feels feels like he has been given the short shrift here that he is just as deserving as Hamilton and isn't getting that and is therefore like frustrated. And I totally understand that from Bird's point of view. And yet he's willing to try his best. Like he's got the short shrift, but it's like, you know what? Okay. Well maybe, you know, things haven't been great for me, but I'm going to make sure that things are great for you. Theodosia. He's not a cynic. He's not, as ambitious as Hamilton, which we are reminded of here. Hamilton will do whatever it takes. Burr, I'll make a million mistakes. But but even in that, there's this humble honesty. There's this candor. There's this, I know I'm not going to be perfect, but I still will do what I can for you. I'll make the world safe and sound for you. So like that that is definitely something to celebrate here i think and it's like those those lines in particular there is some interesting foreshadowing for the rest of their journey that happens in this song that you're you're almost fooled into thinking it's just about their children just about being orphans but it's codifying in a way it's brilliant songwriting it really is it's codifying and and reminding you who these men are. One of them will do whatever it takes. One of them will make a billion mistakes. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the one of the pieces of writing that really endears me to this song is as humans, we always do a little bit of revisionist history when things go well for mm. us. Mm-hmm. Right? We always do a mm-hmm. little bit of revisionist history like, "Oh, like this worked out well, so that was the reason I did it in the first place." And so that's a very human thing to do. And it's not entirely, it's not like a lie or anything, but it's just like when we make a choice and that choice ends up well, it's easy to evaluate that choice as a good choice, even though maybe it wasn't just because it went well. And so what I like is this song kind of 
kind of mixes up the reasons why these guys went to war in the first place, right? You'll come of age with our young nation. We'll bleed and fight for you. We'll make it right for you. If we lay a strong enough foundation, we'll pass it on to you. Well, neither of these men at the beginning of the war, it wasn't like, pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? And then he goes, yes, I'm going to fight a war, so hopefully I can lay a strong enough foundation for my child, and then I can bleed and fight for it and make it right for it. Like, they went into this war, like, when Hamilton's accosting the dude with the scroll in Farmer Refuted, he's not talking about his grievances aren't that this is a bad place for his child to grow up later right so they're kind of they went to war for reasons that had nothing to do with children or at least that wasn't like the singular focus but now that the war's over and they won they're kind of revising that history a little bit to make it sound like hey all along we're gonna bleed and fight for you we're gonna make it right for you as if there was no like self-interest or other motivations evolved earlier. And it's not, I'm not taking a dig at the characters for this. This is something we all do as humans. And it actually endears me to the songwriting and the the musical and this in this song more because these people are acting human. They're kind of revising their reasons for doing this in the first place to fit the situation in life there are now to to kind of cement their choice in their own mind is a good one. And I just freaking love it. I take it more as just a commentary on the coincidence of having newborn children at the same time as the newborn nation. I I take it more as that, but I do see where you're coming from. Yeah, it's kind of both together. I think I think the coincidence and the, the my interpretation of the revising history go hand in hand. Without one, you don't have the other. Like without oh, the coincidence, sure. yeah, without yeah. the coincidence part, you don't have what I'm interpreting as like revising history a little bit. Yeah. So yeah, I, think yeah, they, yeah. I think in my in my opinion, they both exist, but you can't have my point of it without the the um the kind of accidental nature of the whole thing. Oh, I agree. I I think that they coexist. I think that I just when my my experience with the number is like I'm sixty percent on my side and forty percent on yours. Whereas you're sixty percent on your side, forty percent on mine. Right. But absolutely. like they but but they do coexist, right? And totally Can I point out what might to... have been Burr's biggest victory in this musical so far? Earlier I'm very curious uh, to hear what this mu- is. Earlier in the musical, Burr says they can keep all of Georgia, Theodosia, she's mine. This motherfucker gets Georgia and Theodosia. How cool is that? <laughs> it's a huge win. He was <laughs> They have Georgia and Theodosia. What a win for our dude, Aaron Burr. Yeah. <laughs> he does. But it's true. It's in the I had, he, I, had, he, I had no idea what was coming next for me. He you. said, they can keep all of Georgia. Theodosia, she's mine. He was adamant about that. And now they have Georgia and he has Theodosia. This is a huge victory for Aaron Burr. <laughs> for a time. For a time, for sure. Is he going to live in Georgia? No, he doesn't care. He still doesn't care about Georgia. But stats, stats are stats. Earlier, he was going to give up Georgia for Theodosia if that was his, if it was his, uh, if it was his to give up. Mm -hmm. And now he's ended up with Georgia and Theodosia. And I just want to highlight that as a huge win for our man, Aaron Burr, who has not had a lot of dubs throughout the play. And is not going to have a lot of dubs moving forward. So I just want to no, highlight this that one. is uh, unfortunately his fate in this show is to be the one that gets more L's than W's. <laughs> right. So I just want to highlight this one huge win for our man, Aaron Burr, who gets Georgia and Theodosia. Can we touch quickly on how well this song is performed by these two men? Oh, yes, absolutely. I think I think we could touch on it in every single song in this musical. Uh, I think this is one of those songs. This one, Hurricane, come to mind. 
Um, this one, Hurricane Satisfied, is another one. A room where it happened is another one where if you watch it with another cast who doesn't quite do it as well, it's very noticeable. When you don't have the ensemble, when you don't have backup vocals, when it's just like you and you and the stage and the audience and just your raw singing talent, it's very obvious that these two are on the top of their game here. Yeah, it's kind of breathtaking sometimes. And I have utmost respect for Lynn holding his own against Leslie here because I think it's, that this it's is shaky a, in parts. It's a little shaky in the harmonization sometimes, but holding his own is definitely where he's at with this. And again, I think it matches his character to be a little less refined. Um, there's mm-hmm. another point when he's trying to harmonize with um, Elise Goldsberry. I can't remember when he's trying to harmonize with, and, and Oh, it's um during, Oh, what what song is it during? Um, during the whole affair thing, he tries to harmonize with her. I'll bring yeah, it up Reynolds pamphlet. Yeah, yeah, and so like yeah. it's a little shaky there as well. Um, but he holds his own. He definitely holds his own. Yeah, it really is a feat. I mean, I just I I have later on in our fifteen pages of notes, one of mine is just Leslie has no ceiling, um, and Lynn's bringing his A game here, and this this song would be weaker if he wasn't as capable of keeping up you know and this is this is interesting these it's not just this but all of these moments where we get to intimately connect with just these two people i read somewhere and i'm embarrassed to admit that i can't remember exactly lin-manuel miranda originally was hoping to play burr and not Hamilton. And it was the director, Kale, that in casting and prepping to do the rest of the auditions was like, are you crazy? You are Hamilton. You're writing right now. Like, you you have to play Hamilton. I have heard that as well. I do not remember where I heard that, but I will back up the, through, through the grapevine somewhere. Both of us have heard that same thing. Yeah, I'm just curious, you know, as, as a performer, being Lynn on stage, What's it like to 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 be on stage? And obviously, like if you're not grateful for what's going on, shame on you because you're like one of the biggest pop culture people right now. But at the same time, like, are you on stage thinking, I could have done that better? Oh, <laughs> I I love my dude Lin Manuel Miranda a lot. He could have. He's not as good of a singer as Leslie Odom Jr. I I I don't think. Right. And so it's it's hard to know because if the the roles have been like a lot of it is like you've seen one way. It's like when they recast people in TV shows, like if the original For person, sure. yeah. if, the, if like the second person had just been there the whole time, you wouldn't care at all. So maybe maybe Hamilton, maybe if Hamilton had played Burr, I would have gone or if Lin-Manuel had played Burr, I would have been like, oh, his vocals match Burr really well for whatever reason. Right. I think his kind of not being the most polished vocals matches Hamilton not being the most polished person. And yeah. so I think I think that if the roles had been reversed, I think it's a good call to give him Hamilton. Or like if you had given someone like Lawrence, if you wanted like a a, a more secondary character, mm-hmm. right? Like someone like Lawrence, but not someone like Lafayette. Like I don't think Lin Manuel would be a good Lafayette. I think he'd be a great Lawrence, right? And so I, I think I think I think obviously with the talent of Lin Manuel, he'd be he'd be good at all the roles. But to be truly great, I think Hamilton fits really well for him, and Burr probably doesn't. I think you're 100% correct. It's rare, right, that you see something different than what you're originally presented with and think, oh, you know, I mean, I, I think that uh, 
love Ed Norton, but I think Mark Ruffalo is the better Hulk. But that's this kind of a, a rare scenario. Um, but it's interesting to me. In my heart of hearts, it is interesting to me, Bradley, that you think the other role in the show that Lynn manuel Miranda, who portrays Hamilton, could be best suited for <laughs> is Lawrence. This is unrelated to your take about their relationship. I'm just like, like, like Lynn manuel Miranda is the stallion on a stallion with the first black battalion kind of guy. Mm-hmm. He's not like the taking the horse by the reins, making redcoats red with bloodstains kind of guy. Right? I, I don't I, think, di- I don't disagree. Look, that's yeah. a cheap again, shot on again, my I part. I just I had to. Be, I think he'd be good at all of these roles, right? I just think he excels at Hamilton and would excel at being Lawrence and not excel at being Lafayette or Burr. Anyways. No, I agree with you. It's just you left yeah. the corner open. I was coming up on the right wing and I had to take it. Yeah, it's un- it's an unrelated take to your your take, which I still don't disagree with that they had a real, I just don't have any opinion. I just don't have any knowledge of the real life of it. And it's not something I picked up from the play. Well, you know, I'll just be, I'll just be alone over here in my shipping. <laughs> well, your your <laughs> shipping is in the notes quite a bit, actually. Um, I love, I it? love my shipping. It is definitely, it is definitely in the note. I can't remember. It's fifteen pages. I can't remember where in the notes it is. It's definitely there. And tomorrow there'll be more of us. Do we have anything else we want to talk about? Um, before we move into to Lawrence and the unfortunate fate that he gets? No, yeah, I got a couple quick things. Uh, anecdotally, in early versions of the show, the ending verse of the song was supported with the entire company, and then that was cut, and so it's just like finishing the song is just Hamilton and Burr. I think that's a great choice here because there is something nice about having this reprieve both for the company and for the audience, right? Having time with George and then Hamilton and Burr, like you, you do kind of need a break before what's about to come with uh, nonstop. And I would include tomorrow. There'll be more of us in that break. Right. But like yeah, having yeah, that, have, having the piece here, is really, really nice. And again, kind of lines up with having uh, Piraqua, which is a one-person performance uh, coming uh, in, in the Heights, coming before the club at Blackout. So again, formulaic production here that just really, really works. I think it's... And just finishing the number with these two guys, really focusing on it's the two of them. And we're supposed to think about how they're similar, how they're different. I think that that has crucial narrative impact. So I think that's a nice edit there. I agree. I was not aware until you put it in the notes that it was ever any different. Um, there definitely are di- even differences between the soundtrack and the Disney Plus version. So the, the show does slightly evolve over time as people find kind of better choices to make. Um, again, mm-hmm. like you mentioned, it's very important to have that like day one authenticity throughout the whole run, no matter where you're, you're doing the, the musical or when you're doing it or which cast. Um, there are definitely subtle moments like that, though, that, that do change over time as you're going through either the pre-production of it before you show it to an audience or even during the run of it in front of an audience. Yeah, it's a good edit, I think, a good choice. And lastly, on this song, other choices that uh, I think are really, really smart. While I admit 
we're we're seeing like we're seeing these guys as a little grown up now. Their clothes have changed. While I admit that I miss what I call the Hamel tale, uh, oh. I think it's a <laughs> great yeah. choice here that the that we're no longer soldiers here. We're dressed up. We're dressed like statesmen, gentlemen. We've lost our boots. We're now wearing shoes, right? We've lost the coat that lets everybody know that we're part of the army club. And <laughs> most noticeably, to me at least, Hamilton has let his hair down. And it has a look about it that is very appropriate to the founding fathers we see on any dollar bill, right? You know, it's not just Hamilton. It also has a Ben Franklin kind of feeling about it. We age him just enough to let the audience know that time is passing and that we're in different modes now. We are no longer storming trenches outside of Yorktown. We are no longer commanding our battalions. We are now settling in to a different kind of life, right? So this, these visual differences are crucially important. It's just another example of the efficiency with which this play communicates visually. It's a good move by costumes and HMU, even though, again, like I said, I want my Hamiltail back, man. <laughs> it, to me, it just adds, I've never, I, I've noticed it and never really thought about it too much. It just adds to kind of the structure, and like you said, the time passing and all of those things that we need to know, kind of moving in from one, from one mode here to another it's just like a little subtle primer like oh shit things are different right like you might not notice specifically what it is but you definitely know like hey something's different here than when we last saw hamilton and it might take you a little bit to realize it's the hair um, but it just kind of helps move you along to the next phase of these guys lives but also uh the next phase of the musical yeah for sure it's simple right and it's slick but it does a lot of heavy lifting yeah you absolutely know? it's very it's very jarring it's very different mm -hmm. it's also nice to do this now rather than between tomorrow there'll be more of us and going into nonstop because you've got more time during what comes next to affect these costume changes. Right. Yeah, And it allows you to not have Hamilton leave the stage like uh, both Aaron Burr and or Aaron Burr comes on with Hamilton's coat, but Lin-Manuel stays on the stage for all of this. And it kind of gives and that's, you that time to, to not that's have, to why have he, him come backstage. Yeah, that's why he comes on with his coat, because he can't leave stage, right? Because you can't say, I have so much work to do, and then disappear. You can't do that, right? Yeah. And having Hamilton as the through line between these three, numbers, these three numbers is essential, because we are doubling down on him being the focus leading through nonstop. But like after, after what we're going to discuss, and tomorrow there will be more of us, if you lose emotional contact there with Hamilton, that's a huge mistake. He barely even moves on the stage. He walks like four or five steps and Burr mm -hmm. comes to meet him with the coat. Like he, he doesn't even like it goes immediately into the next thing without him even moving very much at all. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you just, you can't like, you can't be bothered to pause there and be without Hamilton because you just have to keep going. Yeah, I've you always found it a little. I've always like found him. it a little weird that Burr like brings him his coat. Like that's such an unBurr thing to do. But I've always just chalked it down to like that's what the musical needs right now, and it's so much better than having him leave the stage. That it's a sensical choice. I, I've never bumped on it because we're in narrator Burr mode there. 
Sure. I, I've just always correlated that, like, you have Eliza giving Hamilton his coat as, like, a symbol of, oh, I go back to the war. Like, I just think Hamilton and his coat has been a symbolic thing the whole time. And this, like, Burr just brings it out and, like, shoves it at him. And I'm like, okay, fair enough. I guess no, no, no. I'm, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you there. I'm just saying we, we've accepted as an audience that Burr has a narrator mode. So if Burr does it in his narrator mode, we understand it as moving the play along, and that's okay. If sure, Burr I've handed never, Hamilton, yeah. if he did it in his character mode, that would be a problem, right? I've never, I've never noticed it and gone like, "Wow, that's awful." I've always just, yeah. like, huh. like would Burr do that, and then just moved on with my life. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a bit, you know, it's it's a bit like it's not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily capital B Burr. Like every time narrator Burr is on stage, he's influenced by the experience of character Burr. But there is a difference between the two modes. Yeah, I totally Narr- agree. Narrator Burr is capable of interacting with the story in a way that character Burr can't, with an objectivity that character Burr can't, right? You know, and so that's that's where I think the coat is coming from. I don't think he's character Burr until he steps into the courtroom, is what I'm saying. Right. Okay. Tomorrow there'll be more of us. I hope so. <laughs> yes, that would be. Fuck, that would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Again, this two. Get the jingle. Someone get the jingle. Somebody jingle. It is now time to, fortunately, because we love doing this podcast, and unfortunately, because Lauren's is kind of our first victim of this post-war scene right now to kind of talk about what happens to him and how this is experienced and viewed through the lens of our our characters on the stage uh, there's some really cool like lighting and and staging tricks that they use here to really evoke emotion out of us and i can't wait to talk about this but first uh, um connor here has a lot of notes about why this was not included in the soundtrack and i think any any time you're any time you are not including the the finality of the death of a character in one version of your production that's a conscious choice right like you 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 choose you know full it's not something you accidentally leave out right this is mm-hmm. something you choose not to put in the soundtrack or choose to add to the stage production so why don't you kind of talk about how that works kind of behind the scenes and what some of the contributing factors are to why you would choose not to have this in the soundtrack and then we can talk about whether that's worth it or not Oh, no, absolutely. And I think like, I, you know, I kind of, whether it's worth it or not, I think it's actually worth opening with some of your thoughts from our, our pre-recording discussion today, because this does feel like a huge moment to not include, like it's a bit of a bummer to not have this on the soundtrack, just because like of the, of the weight of Lawrence, right? So it's it's kind of yeah, difficult. So, it's so, it's, it's you, difficult to say whether this is a uh, uh you know, like this is a win or not for the soundtrack. If you believe it, people listening to this, we actually I want to say each podcast episode in terms of the time we take notes and the amount we talk about this goddamn musical <laughs> off the podcast and like between like texts throughout the week, pre-podcast discussions, <laughs> him and I had like a huge argument. I was pretty drunk last night. It was my birthday, so whatever. We were having like a pretty big argument on Discord yesterday about Angelica for whatever reason, <laughs> right? Like I don't even know how that started. And so like I want to say each podcast it's, episode. It's because we were both a little lit. For some reason, and, Angelica is what we chose. 
Yeah, and so it was like we probably five and a half, six hours of podcast of like us actually talking about Hamilton, if you include the podcast and everything else. Um, so yeah, so so I just so this is weird to me because I saw Hamilton first and then listened to the soundtrack, which I'm sure is the opposite order to a lot of people. I accidentally like saw that Hamilton was playing. I could get tickets, which was awesome and lucky, right? And then I kind of circled back to the soundtrack after. And so when you watch the live production, you get the death of Lawrence, right? And then when you listen to the soundtrack, you don't get it. And so, like I said, you're going to talk about a lot of the reasons why they would do this. But to me, it kind of feels like if you're an author of a book, and this is like a main character. This is not a tertiary guy that we barely know. This isn't like when the dude snapped the girl's neck earlier and she became the bullet. Like, that's kind of stuff that's like off to the side. If you notice it, you notice it. Lawrence is a main figure, someone we know, someone we were introduced to, someone who had time, right? Like, we're, we're being really efficient with our characters, right? We already talked about how there's more than one spy and more than three friends. And so... It's weird to me, kind of like an author of a book being like, hey, I'm only going to have the death of a main character in there if you buy the pre-release edition, right? If you buy the book after a month, they're going to cut that part out and you only get it if you kind of showed up on the first day of publishing or whatever. So it's just a, it's, to me, it's just a, if you're going to cut something out, I get it for a variety of reasons. I just think something as momentous as, as the death, like just the confirmation of the death. They don't confirm it at all until way later, maybe in act two, right? So you you leave act one in the soundtrack not knowing the fate of Lawrence. And so I think that's just a weird choice to leave it kind of, and I guess you don't know the fate of any of the other characters. So it, it matches there that like you don't really know the fate of Hercules Mulligan or of Lafayette. And so I guess it matches there. But if someone's going to die, it feels like a weird thing to leave out. And somehow... Some of the things you've said as to why you're confused about it being left out are reasons I think it it was left out. Like you're sure. yeah. you know? So so here's here's my thing about this. Um I do know for a fact that Lynn himself wanted this left off of the cast recording. So that anybody that listened to it could still have a new and unique experience when they saw the show live. And that's important. That is important and totally valid. And I totally get that. It's just weird that it's a character death. But but look, I don't know anything about making musicals. And Lin-Manuel is like unimpeachable in my eyes. And so what it works and it, it doesn't take away from the soundtrack at all. It's just like a, such a big event to leave out. It is a big event, but it, my my argument is that having that having this as a big event, or or rather having what you leave out be a big event, makes it that much rewarding when you do finally see it yourself. And also, as much as the as Lauren's death changed Hamilton, Lauren's death doesn't change Act Two. I I like that's it it just doesn't. It doesn't change the way the show is built. It changes Hamilton. It changes Hamilton in the moment after he dies. It changes how Hamilton interacts with his own mind and other people, but it doesn't change the plot of the musical. So that's where I'm on board with cutting it from 
the soundtrack. Now, let's talk about what it does change, though. <laughs> because... It's heavy. There's a lot here. It's heavy. About. Right? It changes the emotional weight for Hamilton. It changes the game. It changes the stakes. And you can you can come back at me, like playing devil's advocate to myself here. Okay, well, how can you say that it changes Hamilton but doesn't change the plot of the show? Well, I can say that because the show version of Hamilton never has him on stage fighting with Jefferson and Madison and then turning to the audience and going, golly gee, wish I had Lawrence here. He'd back me up. You know, right, like it's just, sure. there's not, like he's not, it's not reflected in the building of the rest of the show. And that's because, in my opinion, Lawrence meant so much to Hamilton that he never formed a relationship like that with any of his other male confidants ever again. He had a relationship with Lawrence that he never could have possibly had with even Lafayette, with even Hercules Mulligan, who was, as far as we understand it, his first friend that he made in the States. His first real friend was, as far as I understand, Hercules Mulligan. And his relationship with Lawrence was much deeper and much stronger than the one he shared with Mulligan. And there is something about the intimacy of this moment that were it included on the soundtrack I don't think is actually communicated I honestly don't think it's worth including on the soundtrack because you don't get the emotional weight if you don't see it with your own human eyes because there is a lot going on here and there is a lot, whether, whether you think that they were engaging in some horizontal tango or not, there is still a lot of emotional weight, whether it was platonic or, or, or romantic. There's a lot going on between these two guys in the scene. Can I, and no. I don't think that you really get everything in this moment unless you see it. And also, that elevates, if I'm right, if I'm right about the creative teams understanding their relationship, excluding it from the soundtrack, number one, makes it special and private. It makes it unique. It's also unique because it's really the only scene in the show that's not sung through. But number two, and this is just, this is admittedly Star Trek versus Star Wars. This is so similar to Hamilton's descendants redacting his letters with Lawrence, that it is just, like, on a meta level, kind of fucking brilliant. Like, they did not publish all of their letters that they wrote to each other. They edited them. And here, Hamilton's reaction to Lawrence passing is edited from the soundtrack. There's just... there, There are... I guess, in short, in passing, what I'm trying to say, there are multiple levels of this choice where I'm saying I subjectively want it on the soundtrack so that I can listen to it because I love it. I objectively understand this was a 
good choice. Whether it's the right or wrong choice, that's for everybody to decide for their own. But I, I do objectively understand where the came, the choice came from, and it makes logistical sense to me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take the role of devil's advocate again here. And I think this is another 60-40, 60-40 thing where we're mostly agreed. I think you would lean towards leaving it off and I would lean towards leaving it on. Although I'm not like upset that they took it off. Like I totally get all the reasons. I'm going to play devil's advocate to a couple of the points you just made. Just to give our audience like the, the whole spectrum of opinions here. For Lin-Manuel's kind of like he wants something special for the people who are coming to see it live. Something different. I would argue that like just fucking seeing the whole musical instead of just listening to it <laughs> is different enough. Like, 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 look at Yorktown. Yorktown is so different when you watch it than when you listen to it. Like the whole, like, just seeing it live is so different and above and beyond the soundtrack. I'd argue that this, like, keeping something out is just such a minuscule. When when the difference between the soundtrack and the musical is already so great because you're adding a whole like. One's just audio and one's audio and visual. Like you're literally doubling or more the experience already. I think that that's like not the best reason out of all reasons to leave it off. Counterpoint, then, if I may. Okay. Yeah. This is like, I'm, 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 I'm just devil advocating for the devil advocate. Oh, I know. Go for it. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm just being the devil. The uh, devil, that's devil advocate. The devil's devil's. Yeah. The devil's uh, triplicate. Um, that's, that's the truth with seeing any musical live for the first time. That's just, that's the bar. That's not an, an accomplishment. That's the floor. Sure. I, I agree with that. But a lot of people who watch Hamilton don't go to a lot of musical. I don't know. I just think, I think that's, I think that's, I think it's a good reason, but not the best reason. Like, I think it's a fair reason and like a fair point. I don't think that that's like an outstanding, amazingly, overwhelmingly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? convincing it's not an overwhelmingly like when if Lin-Manuel said hey I'm gonna cut this out so that people can have like a new experience when they watch it live I go ah okay but I don't go oh yeah that makes total sense perfect choice yeah because there's in terms of things that you're missing out on like not just the the overall structure of seeing something live right because I'm being a bit cheeky like but but there are there are specific visual things that you miss that we've mentioned already like the bullet right yeah you know already you don't like get you that on the soundtrack yeah you don't get that on the soundtrack there's no uh uh breaking into the middle of the song here by the way there is a woman who crosses from stage right to stage left. you don't get that you know <laughs> or like oh by the way burr is staring yeah at so my my here. differentiator my differentiating factor between the two is that like a, the bullet is the perfect thing to leave out because you can't possibly have that on the soundtrack really but also that it's like, it's a subtle thing. It's there if you want it to be there and not there, you don't miss anything. Whereas Lauren's death is a thing that you could, you, you you make the choice to have it or not to have it, but you could put it on the soundtrack and you chose not to, which is different than the bullet thing. But also, um, it's a way bigger, more obvious thing. Like You can watch the musical and not understand the bullet, but you, could, you can't watch the musical live and miss this. But at the same time, you kind of can. I love this be, so much. We're going in circles be, about this so much. Because, I love this. because Lawrence, as soon as he's erased from Hamilton's heart, is erased from the show. And I think that that's done on purpose. And there's, there is like, I, here's, here's where I do agree with you. There's parts of the end of the show that you only appreciate if you've kept Lawrence in mind, right? 
But at the same time, I don't know if you're going to approach that level of appreciation just leading to this, just listening to the soundtrack anyway. There's a certain level of emotional investment that you really do only get from taking in the full experience instead of listening to the soundtrack. That's why live theater is a different medium from recorded music. That's why this show that started as a concept album eventually outgrew that idea and had to be a stage play because the emotional investment became too much to just to just express on an album. So I think it's a zero-sum game. If you, if you include it, if you watch it, if you see it, you're going to get more payoff at the end of the play. You are, because of my whole thing about their last lines, right? I get that. But at the same time, your ceiling for how your average emotional payoff listening to the soundtrack, I wager, I attest, is a little lower than the experience of seeing Hamilton live. That's what I'm saying. All right. I think we're going in circles enough. I think our <laughs> points are clear. I think our, 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 we've, we've like laid stakes in our land. And I think this can be another like battalion flotilla thing. Let us know in the email, Twitter, what do you think? Right? You heard both <laughs> cases. You're both sides of the story. We're pretty much agreed and just kind of being facetious and fun and, and disagreeing on this one. But... I think it should stay in. I think Connor thinks on the whole, it should probably not be in the soundtrack. I think on the whole, it should be in the soundtrack. No, no, no. no. I think it, I, what I'm saying is I, as a, like, as me, Connor wants it on the soundtrack. Cause I miss it. Like I, I like it. I'm saying as a theatrician, I objectively agree with the decision to not include it. I get it. I'm saying that this is one of those instances where I I personally miss it, but professionally argue that they made the right choice. So don't don't be putting words in my mouth saying <laughs> I don't want more Lawrence. I'm just right. like this well, for me. Like this is I'm just saying this for me is one of those like real textbooks e- examples for me of the difference between subjective fandom and objective analysis. That's All what right. I was trying to convey. Gotcha. All right, let me clarify. Okay, you're going to forget that Connor and I have said anything for the last 20 minutes. I just want to know in in the Gmails and on Twitter, do you agree or disagree with the choice to leave it in the musical or take it out of the soundtrack? That's all we need to know. Just uh. whether you, you've, you've heard all the reasons to leave it on and all the reasons to take it off, regardless of what Connor and I think. What do you think? Would you have made the choice to take it off or would you have made the choice to leave it on the soundtrack? Anyways, we should probably uh, talk at some point about what this fucking song actually is, does, has in it, instead of... What, yeah, what, probably, if we're, if we're going to do a damn job at all. <laughs> um, yeah, we should, we should probably do that a little bit, maybe. Yeah, sorry, I just, you know... Okay, well, everybody has to take a shot, because Connor went on a theater tangent, I guess. Um, <laughs> here's, here's what this song does. We, we say goodbye to Lawrence. That's, on the surface, obvious. That's easy. But let's talk about why we say goodbye to Lawrence in his own song when we start saying goodbye to other people in a medley. Why does this song exist? Why does Tomorrow There'll Be More of Us exist? Well, number one, here's my reasons for this song. First of all, they were dating. They were lovers. Lawrence gets his own song. 
Lauren gets his own song because of his place in Hamilton's life. And the fact that after Lawrence was removed from his life, Hamilton didn't establish a relationship like that with anybody else. Right? They had a unique relationship that was never replaced. And then number two, of all the brawlers in this friend group, of all the abolitionists in this friend group, Lawrence was the most extreme. He was the most reckless. He was the bravest, and he was the most outspoken about abolition. And as, as, dep- as, as saddening as this song is, as sad as it is to learn about John Lawrence passing, this song is one of the most loyal to history while also ramping up the emotional tension at the same time. It doesn't have to change history doesn't have to make adaptive choices to make things um, evocative. This is just the facts. This is who Lawrence was. And that like this, this, I love everything about it. And I love how loyal Lin-Manuel is to Lawrence's legacy here. Because this literally is just the facts. There's no dicking around. This is just what happened. You know, and this is just what Lawrence was. The loyalty here to his legacy is breathtaking. Speaking of which, I'm out of breath. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll continue. I So I don't know anything about Lauren's legacy or anything. Coming into Hamilton, even right now, I hardly know a thing about real life John Lawrence. Right, so I can maybe take another view here and kind of talk about it. Less about Lawrence specifically being the one that dies and more is just an evocative piece of art that that really kind of seamlessly fits between where we are and and where we're going. Um, On a thematic level, what I think this death does, I would have been totally okay actually if if IRL, Lawrence had lived and they killed somebody here, whether it's Lawrence or Lafayette, like whatever, they're already changing history a little bit. So I think as a as a choice, now they're lucky that this actually happened so they can just use it, but as an adaptive choice, what we need to see as an audience and what we need to see no matter what we're watching, that there is a cost to battle. There is a cost to war. And that cost is in a variety of ways, but the most evocative of which is always the human cost. There's a lot of TV shows out there that if they have battle after battle after battle and none of the main characters die, you start to kind of like get out of the show a little bit because that's not realistic. If you have big wars and big battles, people go and people die. And so just on the surface level, having somebody, whether it's Lawrence or anybody else, just having someone be a casualty of the war so we as an audience get to experience the human cost of this war, right? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people died in this war. And so getting just somebody to represent those people, I think is a very smart choice, regardless of whether they're using this example of real life, which is lucky they have, or if they had just completely made it up as an adaptive choice to show us and have something resemble what the human cost of the war was. I'm going to 60-40 you again. I am. I'm sorry, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) It's narratively true that an example of death here would suffice. That's that's my 40% agreeing with you. The 60% is it hits harder because it's Lawrence. It's different. It just hits different. Right. And so I'm advocating for it. Like, if no one had died, right, 
I'm just advocating for someone to have died here. I didn't really put much thought into, like, if, if Lawrence hadn't died in real life, right? If they could just pick any character to die here, I hadn't put much thought into, like, would you still pick Lawrence? That, that wasn't really part of my point, right? Now that you say it, you probably still pick Lawrence anyway, because it probably just hits harder anyway. And I'll agree that, like, Lawrence hits way harder than if it had been Lafayette or if it had been Hercules Mulligan. So I don't even think we're disagreeing. I just hadn't actually thought that far ahead in my own head canon here. Yeah, no, we're not. It's just it's that it's that 4060 thing. It's like we do agree, but there's nuance here. Like in terms of story crafting, there's nuance that that makes things different. And when you're when you're trying to represent who dies that would matter, you know, where do you go? Like Lafayette doesn't die. Mulligan doesn't die. Who's left? Like, who are you going to kill? Washington? Eliza? Angel- like, your, your options are limited to what is real. So you can, you can make the choice to, to say, Lawrence died. That's a big whoopsie. Shame. Big Sag. Or you can put it on stage. And I think that actually putting it on stage and having it, like, influence Hamilton, because it clearly does, given his reaction and the way Lynn portrays it, right? that speaks to Lawrence's importance in Hamilton's life. Hamilton and Lawrence, they have a moment together. We see Lawrence passing, you know, on its own. Again, I keep coming back to this. His exit from Hamilton's life is its own number, separated from the others. Everybody else and their, their separation from his life, it's part of a medley. Lawrence gets his own. I think that's significant. This means more than just being a, a, a signpost for war has casualties. And again, I acknowledge, you agree, murder is bad. We've been over that. Hashtag murder is bad, not bring, the murder bring, part. Bring duels back, but not the murder part. Yeah, bring duels back, but but the murder is bad. I acknowledge that. <laughs> but but yeah, I think there's, I do, like, I, I, I don't know, I think, there's, I think there's a lot more at play here than people die in war. And I, you know what? I argue that's the last part of this that is important. That is the least important part of this. It is more important that it is Lauren specifically than his position as an avatar of casualties of war. Sure. My, my headcanon was just that if Lawrence had not died in real life, I would have appreciated if they had fake killed somebody here. Whether you create like a fictional character from the beginning of the play to kill, I just think like having somebody die here is mm-hmm. important, and we can debate how important that is. And like like I said, it's it's nice, not nice. Like I'm sorry, Lawrence, but like they have a real life important death that they can use here. But I think if no one in this friend group had died, functionally in the story, it it makes sense to have a death here in some way, shape, yeah. or form. Yeah, especially yeah. the the dramatic impact of having that signpost of death come right after a song about two new lives coming into the world. Exactly, right? like that. That's more what yeah. I'm getting at. Is that like I love this. I love this song so much because Lawrence is that important, and it's mm-hmm. true to life, and it's historically accurate. So you kind of get you kind of get wins on all levels here for this song, right? My head canon was just that I think narratively it functions well, kind of separately from all that to have. Exactly. You have the two new lives, but the war had a cost and somebody died. 
Now, how important yeah. that is, whether it's the least important thing or the most important thing, we can all debate. My my argument is just that it is important that something dies here because war has a cost. Yeah, for sure. And I think that this discussion is uh, emblematic of how this is going to be. There's going to be a different ratio of all of these thoughts in the the hearts and minds of everybody that that experiences this show, right? There's there's so much wrapped up in this moment, the end of the war, the signposts of death, the emotional weight of Lawrence dying and how that affects Hamilton. We haven't even got to your brilliant exploration of Eliza reading the letter. Oh, what that means to Hamilton, it right? It is. And, oh and my also, god, it's perfect. It's so fucking perfect. It is. It is. It really is. Like what you have to ha- say here is brilliant. And then I I say honestly, I say we go into that next, right? And then go to my I have so much work to do. But the thing is, like this is one of those like what you're talking about all in, like everybody's going to bring different different measures of the ingredients that make this an emotional cocktail of a moment. And it's going to taste differently to each audience member, but it definitely is a standout song because no matter how you mix those ingredients, it's always going to be an impactful moment, right? Is I guess what I was trying to trying to get to in my odd rambling of, of, of nonsense there. Yeah. I think this podcast is so much better when we slightly disagree. Just for us, I think it's great to show that like two people like because you're kind of the theater guy and I'm kind of not the theater guy. So like coming at it from those wildly different perspectives, the fact that we agree as much as we do, I think is actually quite crazy. (laughs) I think if you had told me how much are you guys going to disagree like before the podcast started like the whole time, probably all of it. (laughs) Um, But I think it's important, even if it's just playing devil's advocate to give people right, even if we both 100 percent agree, like having somebody take the opposite take just to have that for the audience who's listening to this podcast is, is incredible. Um, let's move into that. I, I want to first before can, do you know the historic, the, I want to know like the genuine interest here and maybe you have the answer. Maybe you don't. Right. It specifies in the song that he was killed in a gunfight by retreating soldiers. And we've talked a lot about like the structure and the rules of war and how like the cabinet battles are actually like less structured and seem more wild than the killing and murdering in the war was. Right. Mm -hmm. Is this something that was sanctioned? Is this like a case of like, hey, like this is before the big surrender and they were just retreating from position. I got the sense when I listened to the song and still do that. It kind of implies like, oh, they were retreating to leave like they had already surrendered. Did this happen between Yorktown? Like we talked about, there's this blip period of time. Was this like a normal like they're still at war? There's a period between Yorktown and the surrender like the formal surrender, is this just like a normal battle or is this like way against the rules here? Or do you it's know? It's neither. It's it, it's neither. What happens here is neither an attack on retreating soldiers or... Yeah, yeah. so it it's weird, but it is one of the, the most emblematic uh, moments in John's life. And it's just ironic that this... This moment that like tells you everything about who he is was was his death. Um, he was still in South Carolina. This is after Yorktown. He left the main contingent of forces that helped take Yorktown and goes back to South Carolina. The line in the show, Lawrence's in South Carolina, redefining bravery, 
is a pretty good assessment of what he was doing. And he also was very adamant about his intentions to form the first black battalion. He was very adamant about freeing people to fight in an integrated and or all black formation. So anyway, this is um, 1782. I mean, I have and, no idea. I, not the yeah, this, so the thing is, this is this is either 1781 or 1782, and Lawrence has the distinction of possibly being the last casualty of the war. Oh, and dear. it's impo- it's impossible to know whether he was or not. Like it, it just is. Like it's impossible to know who died when. But anyway, so in South Carolina. At the uh, at the Combahee River, so Lawrence was detached to a General Green and learned about a British uh, encampment still in South Carolina. And again, this happens. You have remnants of the army that remain. And right, and this there's... also might be before. Like I think the formal surrender was eighty three. If I have mm-hmm. my date right, so if this happens before the formal yeah. surrender, it might just still be the war. Like it's, I'm just wondering if this is against the rules or not. No, no, no. It's it's not against the rules. It's all Lawrence's fault. That's important to keep in mind. Like the thing is, like the war was over. That's a statement of opinion. That's not a statement of fact. Right. You, like you see factually, what I'm the the surrender has not happened yet. Right, but. We, I think we did a pretty good job explaining the significance of the Battle of Yorktown, and that's because we'd done enough damage to the land army of the English to where it's like it, it it's like when you're when you're playing multiplayer and you know that you don't have a chance to win, so like you can keep fighting or you can just right. concede and watch a movie. So the thing is, yeah. So the war was pretty much over, but these troops in South Carolina, British troops were setting out on a foraging excursion and Lawrence got his detachment together and went to ambush the British troops and it did not go well. And trying to approach, um, trying to approach the British with his infantry and like a couple of artillery pieces, they got found out. And so as they're approaching the English soldiers, they see, they, they quite literally see the English see them. And Lawrence goes YOLO and charges and, and commands his troops to follow after him. And he was outnumbered, outgunned, oh, textbook. Man example of Uh, everything else that we planned maybe no he was yeah and uh washington's lines (laughs) exactly um but yeah it was um and it was at uh chiha point which uh interestingly enough there's a mount chiha um in uh alabama close to where i grew up anyway um (laughs) that's where he's just uh he's just shot so much because he's at the head of the charge right but it was just the war the war wasn't over for him 
you know, and that that for me, like the war was over. If you look at the stats, which are for nerds, the war was over. The British didn't have a chance to to like really recover. But Lawrence was not giving up. And there were people threatening South Carolina and he was going to go combat them. And so he he literally he he dies in a hail of gunfire charging the enemy like cock out let us go like pardon the expression but like it is one of like he was he was reckless to a fault and it's like his the the way he dies is not necessarily brave it's more foolhardy if i'm being honest like if i'm being objective here like it's it's kind of foolish but he was given an opportunity to fight for his land and he took it like he's he's very much historically an example of not throwing away your shot unfortunately he just then went and got you know shot a lot well often the often the the time the the distinction between courage bravery and stupidity is just the outcome right yeah it's like if if lawrence goes and defeats those british shoulders it's probably quite brave but because he died it's probably quite stupid right like i I think the difference between courage bravery and stupidity is kind of like a triangle and the outcome mm-hmm. of whatever your choice was kind of helps you helps determine where you land. Um, so all in all, what we learned about Lauren's death is that it's legit. It's not against the rules. This is him kind of recklessly going out, right? The, the British had surrendered at Yorktown, but not surrendered the whole war yet. So this is like a sanctioned thing. And this is mostly Lauren's fault. Is that mm-hmm. kind of like a good summation of what? Well, happened? that's like, if I'm being fair, yeah. Like the idea was that the British were like on their way out. And that's that's where a lot of that retreat stuff comes in. Because like, yeah, they were generally on their way out, but they were also still trying to survive in the States as long as they could, and therefore that's why they were, you know, foraging for further supplies. But as to the own uh, the own fault thing, yeah. He could have assessed the situation. He could have not attacked. He could have learning that they had been found out. He could have retreated himself. And also. Another thing to consider is. For all of we know, and it's not like only one person has looked into this. For all we know, there's multiple people that have provided evidence Lawrence spent the night previous with camp followers the entire night and shows up before they're supposed to muster and leave like a couple hours before. So this 27-year-old, 28-year-old, this child, right? This, This guy, reckless, full of vim and vigor, spends the whole night whoring shows up at breakfast and says, let's ride out, y'all. Let's go. Like, I, you know, it's just, it is, it it is an interesting, uh, it is an interesting end to an interesting story. (laughs) All right. So we've covered Lawrence's death. Now I want to talk about the, the, I know I talk a lot about how human moments are, and it's just an effect of good writing, right? You are writing human characters. Right, this is a this is a fictional ish story based on true events, kind of. So there's a lot of adaptive choices and things you might move around to make the story better, even if they're not historically accurate or even that accurate to the characters, just to make the whole thing work. 
and function. Human moments, though, are very important because, like I said, you are writing humans. And so what I love about the letter, it's absolutely perfect. And when when Eliza comes in, I'm trying to get this exactly right in my head. When Eliza comes in and says, there's a letter, right? You can hear in her voice immediately, oh, this is bad. This is bad news. Like You can just hear her line mm-hmm. delivery. And then Hamilton goes, yes, it's from John Lawrence. I'll read it later. And then as soon as Eliza says, it's not from John Lawrence, it's from his father. Hamilton knows that Lawrence has died. That is the only thing that could be in this letter, right? You just know it's a human moment. You just know. And so what does Hamilton do? He asks her to read it to him because how else would you want to receive bad news? If he didn't think the news was bad, he would still go and read the letter later. Right, that was his plan, was to read the letter later. He already said that. And so he knows that it's bad news. He knows it must be that Lawrence is dead. Eliza already knows this and is kind of, or at least like you can intuit that she knows it's bad news whether she's read the letter yet or not. And so the the moment where he asks her to read it to him is so human to me because how else would you want to receive bad news? Who else, if you're in Hamilton's chair, would make a different choice? right? Like your wife comes in, you need someone to deliver this bad news. In life, we love to have bad news delivered to us by someone we trust, right? If you don't trust a person and they deliver you bad news, you're already like upset because of the bad news that you might add like ulterior motives to it or whatever, right? But having someone you trust deliver the bad news is so human to me. And it's so subtle. Like you can just tell that he knows it's bad. It's perfect. It's perfect line delivery. It's perfect writing. It's a perfect staging it's all perfect because it's 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 such a perfectly human moment for me to hamilton to for hamilton to just realize like oh it's from his father he knows lawrence is dead or that the news is terrible and then to have his wife read it to him is perfect yeah it really is like you offer a a very holistic uh examination of why that moment functions so well um, are you are you familiar with uh, and this is related to your analysis of that moment? Are you related to the phrase post hoc ergo propter hoc? No, what? So it was popularized by an episode of the West Wing, but it's a Latin phrase post hoc ergo propter hoc translates into after it, therefore, because of it. And it's a fallacy often right? After it, therefore, because of it. It is often a fallacy because it's something that we assume is always true, right? We always assume that that which came before immediately influences what comes after. Okay? Correct. Yeah. Causation that, and correlation hu- is similar to. Y- yeah, yeah, yeah. It's related to that. It is related to, to causation correlation. Exactly. So, but this is an instance of where the the inverse is employed by this show intentionally to let us know <laughs> that what's coming is not great. Because this is an instance where after it and therefore because of it is true, and the emotional weight of that truth is crucial. Because, yeah. Exactly what you're saying. Read it for me comes after it's from his father. It is like in that moment, you're like, oh, okay, well, a shoe's about to drop. Like, I don't know what's about to happen, but it's not going to be good. 
Yeah, it to- it totally like it sells the moment. Like and and the music helps like the <laughs> you just know as an audience member is going to be bad news because of the music, but as Hamilton, you know it's bad news when he's when she says it's from his father and then you then then you ask her to read it to you. I just find that very human. Right? Whether that's whether they whether that was just always how it was going to go or whether that's something they workshopped, right? It adds right cuz I don't think on the surface, I don't think it matters that much, but I think when you're when you're operating at the level of Hamilton, Hamilton is operating as one of the best musicals in in modern history. Would you agree with that? Like at the le- consistent level of Hamilton operates at is exceptionally high, and this is one of those moments that they 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 are working at an exceptionally high level. I think you could do this scene a hundred different ways and get like a similar ish emotional engagement. Like it's hard to mess up somebody's death. Like your best friend's death is going to be emotional and it's hard to mess that up. But to, to operate it at this perfect level, this 11 out of 10 level that Hamilton consistently operates at is just incredible to me. I agree. It's operating on a high level in multiple different ways. You have us, you know, getting reminded of Eliza right after talking about his son, Philip reminded of the family unit but now she has ill tidings and now those ill tidings are about lawrence and so if you buy into the romance then this is complicated because now you have to deal with this triangle and you already had to deal with the triangle between angelica already and now she has to give him the news so yes he's seeking comfort from her but also how dare you make her deal with the the emotional weight that you're going to deal with Lawrence because she has to know. She knows. I mean, all of this, all of this wraps up into such a heightened moment. And it's telling here that they know when they're making what you're categorizing as one of the greatest musicals. They have to know that the emotional weight they're placing on stage here is enough for anybody because in terms of staging in terms of composition this is one of the simplest moments in the show all we have to deal with here is hamilton eliza and lawrence that's it that is enough to deal with on stage without a bunch of flashing lights without a bunch of sound cues like this it has enough impact for anybody with a soul you know like this is all you got to deal with we don't we don't need choreography we're just going to deal with this yes right. it's absolutely one of one of the most impactful moments in in one of the best made musicals in my humble opinion it, it it truly is and it's and, and it's not it's not just this moment that makes hamilton the best show or one of the best but it's this type of construction right that makes it one of the best to me it's time. that even these small into a moment a moment like i said that you don't even include on the soundtrack like this is not the most important moment of your musical by your own admission because it's not included in the soundtrack but even that these small moments and details are operating 11 uh, at 11 out of 10 is what's impressive to me right like i'll use the example of frozen again if you do frozen the musical and everything's okay 
and let it go is spectacular, then you're doing a great job. Right, but Hamilton is not taking that approach at all. Everything is fucking spectacular. Even this small, emotionally sad moment is operating at a genius level. That's what's impressive to me. It's not even impressive that it's like Lauren's death or anything. It's that this is a relatively small moment compared to the whole musical. And yet it's still the time and the care has been put in to make it perfect. Right? They could have easily made this moment an 8 out of 10 and we would have all watched it or heard it and loved it and moved on with our lives. But they don't. They take the time to make even these smallest moments perfect. And that that overall adds up over the course of Hamilton to just equal what we get. Yeah, it, it is kind of the perfect confluence, the perfect storm of the true story being spectacular enough to just be like, hey, sometimes all you got to do is tell the story, put it on stage, and it's going to have the impact. You know, sometimes you just got to put a, a good arrangement underneath it, and it's going to have emotional weight. And other times, it's the raw talent of people making this show. But, like, these moments keep happening over and over and over again. I can't I can't agree with you more that that's part of the show's success because it is relentless in giving you these um these uh oh man another another theater tangent is coming I'm trying to resist it <laughs> we have I, an hour until uh, I have to go to my birthday dinner I haven't even started I know I know yet. that's the thing <laughs> that's the thing it's uh, it's the the my buddy Carl I've talked about him on the show already. He has this story about the $90 moment. And it's it's very important to him. It's the idea that, you know, if you if you're going to spend that much money on a ticket to Broadway, like you better have at least one moment in a show that even if the rest of it is awful, eh, at least that moment was good. And and what I'm hearing from you is that one of the reasons that Hamilton is so good and this moment is emblematic of it. It's chock full of that moment. It's why people spent multiple times over $90 to see the show. You know, it's just, it's consistent. It's, it, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't give up. It's nonstop. It's nonstop. <laughs> every, every moment is a $90 moment in Hamilton. Like it's perfect. Even like, like we talked yeah. about when we do the song ranking, some songs are going to come at the bottom. There are some songs yeah. that, o- that only function as like a narrative bridge to the next song. But even those are perfect at being that narrative bridge. Like every song, like they're not trying to make every song a spectacle, right? But the ones right. that are intentionally not spectacles, they're perfecting them being intentionally not spectacles. And so like, it's just the, the sum of all the, the, the sum of the parts is greater, right? There's synergy here, right? If you just add all the parts together, the, the sum exceeds the, the, the number that you, that you input with all the songs here. Anyways, there's two, (laughs) I apologize to our viewers. Normally I like the reason why the podcasts are three hours is that I firmly believe that we just talk about what we feel until we're done. And then that's the perfect podcast. If you're like cutting opinions or things out, then you're not doing a deep dive properly. But I do have an actual dinner I need to go to in like an hour. <laughs> so we're going to have to motor through nonstop to the extent that no, we can. No, look, I, 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 dude, I've honestly been thinking about that. And I, I think I was uniquely prophetic 
earlier today when I suggested that we could do an episode on nonstop on its own because we're we're getting close to that real fast. And, you know, I don't want to be a tease to people that started the episode thinking we were going to power through all the way to the end of Act 1, but I think that that's not necessarily, and I'm biased here, not necessarily an, a, an exploration of us being insufficient. It's more a statement about how much is packed into the end of this act. And I honestly think we finished talking about tomorrow there will be more of us. And I, I, I think nonstop is its own episode not next week. I'm not going to lie. Dead serious. Dead serious? You want to do nonstop next week? I do. I, I think there's an hour and a half or two hours just on nonstop and what I think about my homework and my rules for the end of an act of a play. Sure. I let's, honestly think it's there. Let's do it. All right, ladies and gentlemen. We today dove deep, much deeper than I thought we were going to dive. I have so much work to do. <laughs> um, do you want to talk about that line? We haven't even talked about a fucking line. Good God. <laughs> after, God. After, after all after this. A, a ten, after all that, we're back into it. Yeah, you know what? Let's go. Let's all right, go. I'll, okay, I'll go do it. it. I, I'm going to do it real quick. I want to hear how you feel about it. And then I am, I'm, I am expecting, I am needing. And if you don't do it, I'm quitting. I need you to go straight into outro mode so you can go to your own birthday party, you hooligan. I will. Um, here's, I have so much work to do. Hamilton, as a character and as a man, it is more important when he says nothing than when he says everything. And again, this is, I, I guess, going to come up more and more in what is now next week's episode, which again, good idea on my part. Good job, Doug. <laughs> I'm proud of you. What matters is when he says nothing, and he can't even, in this moment, deal with Lauren's death. He cannot express how he feels. Hamilton, as a character, he is hip-hop, but he is also jazz. What matters most is the notes you don't play. What matters to Hamilton is the words you don't say. And his silence here and the way he never actually deals on stage with Lawrence passing matters a lot. Now, that being said, we can also give Hamilton a little bit of narrative credit here because part of Lawrence's personality was abolitionism, right? So maybe, maybe Hamilton is inspired to ramp up his abolitionist thinking. Maybe, right? That's something that we as the audience get to wonder about. But also, we just witnessed this huge loss from him. Luckily, he's there to be comforted by Eliza, but he doesn't seek comfort. He goes off on his own. Hamilton is a shitty husband. I'm sorry, but he is. He's really bad. And we're we're gonna <laughs> we're, be... This is not the right point to talk about it, I don't think, but like he's fucking awful. No, 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 but this is an example of it, right? Like Absolutely, this is this, yes. this is not the penultimate example of it. The thing is the reason I mention that is that he I mention it here 
because he is a good lover. He loves Eliza, and his requesting comfort from her is a reaffirmation of his investment in her emotionally. He is a dedicated lover. But in terms of functioning as co-equal partners and being a, a, a functional husband to her, he messes up regularly. And so this is a moment of like, it's great, the duality we get here. His mourning for Lawrence, his love for him, and his love for Eliza on stage simultaneously. There's so much packed into I have so much work to do. We've talked so much <laughs> about the efficiency of the writing in this show. And for me, this might be like the moment on stage that has the most going on that isn't said. This might be, this might take the crown for me. It, so I think this line takes, I think this is one of those lines that, that changes meaning depending on how many times you listen to this. Cause the first time I watched Hamilton, I was like, oh, okay. He has so much more work to do. Like he's talking about the slavery thing, but then that doesn't come up again. Right. Hardly like it kind of does, but not really. Right. So initially I thought like, oh, we talked about that last week. Yeah. Like, oh, he has more work to do. He's going to keep on pushing with his anti-slavery thing because that's the work Lawrence was doing to me it says a lot about like yes hamilton's a a bad husband and we're gonna dive deep into that for sure (laughs) but i also think too it shows that people grieve in different ways some people just need to get back to work right i think we often in society even today kind of apply our own standards of grief to other people right like if someone's blank dog friend fiance whatever has just passed and they like show up to work a couple of days later, we often like judge them based on that in our, in our society today. Like, Oh, they're not like, aren't, shouldn't they be home? Shouldn't they be grieving? Shouldn't they be whatever? And I just want to point out like different people grieve differently. And for Hamilton, obviously his way, just cause it's how he is as a person, his way of grief would just be like to keep writing. Like, how do you write? Like you're running out of time. How do you write? Like you needed to survive. Part of it, I think is probably that that's his fucking getaway from the shit things that happen in life. And so I think this is like him being him leaving Eliza to go off on his own, I think is partly that he's just a bad husband. But I also think it's partly that that's probably just with with what we know about his character, how he handles grief, whether it's Lauren's death or whether it was another type of grief. Right. Um, when Philip dies later, they like go uptown like they get like he he's with Eliza at that point, but he like gets away. Right. Like that's that to me, that's kind of how he handles it. And so I, I'm not too judgmental. I try not to be in real life and certainly in this musical. I just try not to be judgmental about how people grieve because I don't want to imply that one way is better or worse inherently than another. No, I love that. Like, I really do because what you're saying there, your analysis of this is loyal to the Hamilton that we've been presented already and the Hamilton that we're going to be reminded of in nonstop, right? Uh, In the eyes of a hurricane, there was quiet. Uh, and he wrote his way out, you know, and, and here he he's writing nonstop, right? This is what he does. Like when, when he is encountering trauma, he turns to his work. So even like, and I don't, what, like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of excited and enamored with what you're saying, because 
nothing you've said, I don't think necessarily contradicts what I'm putting forward, but they're from completely different POVs. Like he's turning to his work as a comfort, but number one, that's not to say that he's necessarily devoid of empathy or human feeling, but number two, it is consistent from what we have known about Alexander Hamilton, the character in a musical since page one, right? And that's like, that's something that I don't think that I've ever considered enough. And I'm just like, I'm starting to, I'm starting to tingle about like the, the, the added layers of like self loyalty to its own script that this line and this play has with a line that already meant so much to me. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's really like it's, it's electric. Like, Oh, I have a completely new way to think about this, to reframe it in my mind, a new way to envision it. And at the same time, I don't have to reconsider what I was bringing to the table already. It's just a little, a little extra seasoning on what was already there. Man. Boom. Yeah, because that that makes like if you do that, right? If you take that, okay, hang on. I'm almost done. I'm so I've I've just you've you've so you've so energized me. <laughs> take that into nonstop. Everything you just said. Take Hamilton using work and writing as his mechanism for dealing with trauma. And I've talked on this podcast already about my being a workaholic, about my avoiding life in favor of work. But take into consideration everything that you just said. Burr continuing to challenge, why do you do this? If, if we... If we agree and accept that Hamilton retreating into work is a mechanism for dealing with trauma, doesn't that make Burr seem like he has much better tools for dealing with his life than Hamilton? And if that's true, if we keep going one step further, does that connect to earlier talking about the common ground that they have that they never explored. Like if, if they had not talked to each other and understood that they were more similar than they were different, could Burr have further been a help to Hamilton than he was like what, what you're saying here about work as a mechanism for Hamilton escaping trauma is, is encouraging me to, not completely reconsider Burr and Hamilton's relationship, but add like not look at it through a new lens, but maybe if I'm looking at it through a red lens, maybe I'll go to a pink lens now, you know, it's just as little it's it's modified just a little, you know what I mean? Well, I think too, it's all thick. It's all things together. Like Hamilton is already a workaholic before this trauma. Right. Like that's something we know about him. Like Mm -hmm. he is already a workaholic. He is going to and he's going to climb his way to the top. So without the trauma, his actions in nonstop and and the rest of the musical make perfect sense. I think he is. And again, I really don't want to say that his way of grieving is bad and Burr's toolkit is better. 
Right, because I think trying to judge people on how they grieve is just a really like mean-spirited thing to do when so much of it is out of your control. But what I do think is that when you have someone who's already a workaholic, who's he's already like willing to just completely ignore Eliza and his family to do what he wants to do. He's he's never going to be satisfied, right? He wants to climb to the top. He's already someone who who barely acknowledges his family in favor of climbing to the top. And then you add the fact that that's also how he grieves and you just have like a powder keg. It's a powder keg about to explode. He needs Burr to lighten the load maybe, right? Like when when the but, way- when But the, he doesn't reach out to Burr and ask no, him to like, do it. I just, think, yeah. I just think it's like when, when the way you already function is kind of problematic and then the way you grieve is like a triple version of how you already function that was already problematic. I think that's just like, like you said, it's another lens to add to it. Yeah, for sure. And I, for, you know, for sure, am not offering any informed opinion on what is the best way and the worst way to grieve, right? This is just, you know, like, this is just my opinion of the grieving we see from Hamilton in the show. And I think that that some individuals are going to be more successful grieving in one way than others. But it is, I just, Man, you've really got my brain going about that. And I, I'm very excited. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Are we ready for an outro? Oh, I mean, here's the thing. The problem is, again, subjective and objective. <laughs> I, I know that we got to stop. But you don't I want feel to. Like I don't want to. Right. Let's right, well, let's wrap it up. Let's get let's get let's get to the end screen and let's let's nonstop next week. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode of Let's Dive Deep. As always, now you're gonna get two chances: this podcast and the nonstop <laughs> one to email us your questions. Email them, tweet them, send a smoke signal, send a raven or a bird. I don't know. Just if you can get a message to me. It's somehow, some way, that is an acceptable way. That maybe not always, but like most ways are fine. So find a way, preferably let's dive deep pod at gmail.com or Twitter at let's dive deep. But feel free, some of the Bridgerton people found me on Facebook and messaged me. Is that cool? Probably not, but like it got their message across. So, like through email, Twitter, like go and find a way to get your questions, concerns, anything you want us to talk about in between acts like get them there asap otherwise just thank you so much for being here thank you so much for listening for another two and a half hour podcast um, make sure you leave those five star reviews make sure you check out the show notes um, for connor's kind of professional stuff and for the let's dive deep bridgerton pod otherwise just thank you so much for watching listening i guess it's listening if it's a podcast and we will see you in the next one <laughs>